Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 39. This week, we talk with Lauren Buño about MVVM Lite, applying NASA coding standards in JavaScript, Rosalind is moving to GitHub, and can a computer be racist? Hey, Carl, I heard you got something new. Yes, I am a <laughs> proud owner of a Microsoft band now. Awesome. Finally. Finally, it's about time. And actually, I got a little bit of tip to go with it. So okay. um, I was heading my way down because Microsoft stores are nowhere near where I believe anybody lives. And uh, <laughs> and uh, I called up and they just had a generic answering service. I, I'm used to that. I, I asked, what are the is the availability in the store that I'm heading to? And uh, they said, we're sold out everywhere. So just because it seemed a little suspicious, I went anyways. And not only did they have some, but they said, we have tons here and we want you to get the word out that we'd love to sell them. So if you're calling and they keep saying that there are none, you might want to go down and actually talk to the people at your closest store, even if it is a bit of a hike. It's hard getting a hold of people at the store through the phone. But uh, for me, it was definitely worth it. Well, and what was interesting, you told me that you went down there expecting a Microsoft store and here it was a kiosk. Yes, it was in the in the middle of the mall, like it was one of those tiny yeah. cell phone shops or something. I'm wondering too, like how how, how do they have them on display? They, they did you see them or not? Or yeah. was it just the was it just the display model? They, they had a they had one on display on a nice little mount and then uh, on each side of the kiosk. So there was no matter which side you came up from, you could oh, see it. It was okay. it was right in the middle where it was pretty clear. Okay, because in the regular Microsoft stores, they have all these fake boxes. So, you know, it looks like they're fully in stock. Plus, um, they're just really easy to see in a regular store. So I was just kind of curious if maybe people are going there, you know, Mm -hmm. that don't know about the band and there's no discoverability. Now, at least at the location that I went in Wisconsin, um, they were pretty clear that they were there and they had some. And when he opened up the drawer that had even more, it was just full. Oh, wow. So, yeah. And I recommend go on to the stores because you get or that key or the kiosks, right? Because then you can figure out what size you are because you're a uh, small Carl. Uh, not even close. <laughs> <laughs> no, I actually what's what's interesting about that, too, is I don't know if you've noticed like how much your 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 wrist changes like in the in the cold. Like I go for a walk out in the cold and I have to my I have a large and I have to put it to the smallest setting. And then other times I have to like loosen it way up. Yeah, I keep uh, adjusting mine as well. So sometimes it feels too tight, and then sometimes I feel that it's moving, and so I, I reset it. I think the the I'm actually quite happy with the clasp. I think it's pretty easy to adjust with just one hand. So mm-hmm. well, which is of course a must be for for watch, right? <laughs> so yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, you get uh, you get used good. to it. Yeah, yeah. Who who the heck is that talking? That must <laughs> hey. be uh, L- Lauren Bunio. Did I sp- <laughs> did I pronounce that close? Uh yeah. why don't you say it so we have the right pronunciation uh yeah actually the french way to say it is laurent bunion and nobody can say that so yeah there's no way that i i would need extensive (laughs) practice for that anyway so he is an mv mvvm the i should say the author of mvvm light he's a microsoft mvp microsoft regional director my msdn magazine author a plural site author a xamarin evolved speaker uh, technology geek and a service pro three pusher according to carl <laughs> <laughs> so welcome to the show we we're so happy to have you on here thank you so much yeah um so we'll get to some questions uh with you in just a bit but sure. let's get into listener feedback so we have 
No feedback this week, but <laughs> if you want to get mentioned on the show, send us an email to feedback at msdevshow.com, or you can comment on Facebook. That's uh, facebook.com slash msdevshow, um, or you can leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Actually, I was looking at Stitcher. I have no idea how to look at the comments if there are any on there, but uh, leave us a review on iTunes. That one I know how to figure out. And uh, we especially love those those iTunes reviews. That really helps us spread the word on the show. Uh, so let's jump into the news. So what is this first one, Carl? App Biz Dev Podcast. Yes. <clears throat> a former guest of ours, Rob Irving, uh, he was doing it with uh, the show was on Ad Duplex. He kind of restarted the App Biz Dev Podcast with uh, another gentleman, Robert Sherbet. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a former, uh, Nokia ambassador as well. And, uh, if you're looking at a podcast that talks about monetization apps, the business of making apps and whatnot, uh, you might want to check them out. We'll have the link to their podcast in, uh, the show notes and you can find them in iTunes and all the usual places because mm-hmm. they are just picking up a, a podcast that already existed. They had they had done like 20 episodes and kind of dropped off for a year. And these two guys, they just decided, hey, this is something worthy of picking up and getting going again. So the, uh, they started that. And uh, their first guest that just released this past week was with one of our former guests, Atlee Hunter. So, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, he's pretty well known, at least in the uh, Windows Phone and Windows app development circles. So I highly recommend checking out their podcast if you need another one to listen to. Awesome. Yeah, there's a lot of good uh, podcasts spring up, it seems like. There, I should say a lot of, there, well, there are a lot of good podcasts and I, I think, uh, you know, like kind of mainstream podcasts, but I'm seeing a lot of these niche podcasts as well. You know, if you want to dive in any particular topic, which I think is really cool, you know, if we can cover like every possible topic with an, in, with an entire podcast series, that's pretty awesome. Okay, uh, what else we got here? Can a computer program be racist? I don't think so, Carl. So what <laughs> you want to explain this? Yeah. Um, so this is an article I just happened upon and I thought it kind of proposed an interesting question. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of times, you know, we write algorithms and computer programs that kind of take a bunch of set of data and it might may even learn from it. So they gave mm-hmm. it, they gave a, I, I don't know if it was a real example or a hypothetical one, but if you train this, you know, for insurance reasons, you know, this program on, you know, this set of data and give two identical people, except one you know, is a black person, one is a white person, and it approves the white person, disproves the black person. The only thing different is their race. You know, it kind of goes, you know, is the program being racist? I mean, it was, right, tra- it, was right. tra- it was, it was trained on data. And, so and we, is it say this is happening? Like I said, um, you know, it's, it gives some, uh, you know, studies and stuff like that. Okay. And I'm not sure if this exact scenario was real or not, Yeah, but, but it really kind of, you know, opens up some, you know, ethical questions when it comes to these, you know, programs or even libraries that you use that you lean on, you know, is it, you know, is it doing not just the, the statistically or mathematical correct thing to do, but is it doing the thing that's appropriate to the values of your company or to society? Yeah, yeah there was really a interesting. there was an article recently. Um, I think I read it before Christmas, if I remember correctly, and I, I forgot the exact details. So forgive me for that. But uh, it was um, some research program where they had uh, an intelligent um, uh, artificial intelligence uh, application, and uh, they had trained the program to buy stuff online, 
And at some point, they noticed that uh, some of the stuff that this uh, artificial intelligence had purchased was actually illegal in the States. Um, I forget exactly <laughs> what it was, but there was probably some drugs or some weapons inside there, I forget. Oh, nice. And so the big question was basically, who is, um, who is going to jail? Um, is that the programmer? Or oh. is it really, uh, because, you know, you program an algorithm which auto-learns. And so you could say that, you know, the, the programmer is not really responsible for that. So it's, uh, it opens the door to a lot of interesting questions. Yeah, I, I hate those kinds of questions. But in, in, <laughs> in that case, in that case, I mean, you, you have to blame the programmer, right? Because if you, if you don't blame the, blame the programmer, then you've just, you know, you've just opened up a loophole. You know, so well, the second you the second you don't blame them, you have to figure out how to close that loophole. Otherwise, I could just write a program that, you know, goes and does whatever. I guess so. At the same time, um, at some point, we'll have to accept that, you know, as artificial intelligence becomes better and better, we'll have to accept that the programmer has only so much responsibility. Yep. And so it's uh, it's kind of the same issue of, uh, you know, at what time do you stop blaming the parents for the kids for the kids behavior? Right, um, right. Not not saying that, you know, you can equate at this point, but, you know, at the, at the speed at which uh, technology is evolving those days. It's well, I, I'm just saying it's interesting to think about it. <laughs> yeah, no, well, no, I think you made a really good point with the kids. I mean, there, there is no age, right? Like it varies. Um, and I think yeah. that's the answer for both of those is, is it's not, I don't think it's just cut and dry. You know, you can't say, uh, you know, what any code that gets written, the programmer is no, not responsible for. And you can't say that, you know, they, they have to be responsible for it. It's got to be sort of in the middle and yeah, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's much more, um, um, nuanced than that. I, I think so. Yeah, it's a, it's really a, it's not a black and white picture for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, and I know, like you know, speaking of the the original article here, I mean, I know that they're, you know, like insurance companies are are always trying to, they want to have every possible input that they can to um, evaluate risk, mm -hmm. and this is just you know to them this is just another input. So yeah, then it becomes a question of okay, should you be using this as an input? And, um, you know, I, I race probably isn't even the worst one. There's probably, there's probably yeah. even worse things that, that I can't even imagine right now. Well, and not to mention, you know, when you talk about who's responsible, you know, if it's, if it's a learning thing, it's part of it is who is inputting this data too. If it's something wide open to the public, you know, is, is society in general responsible for creating these bad decisions? Yeah. So like I said, it, it's, it's kind of interesting when you think about that. Well, let's keep talking about it until we solve it here. No. <laughs> no, let's move on. Uh, let's see here. Uh, applying NASA coding standards to JavaScript. Yeah, I I, I kind of just like looking at NASA standards in general. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I for a small period of time, I had a short relationship with NASA. Um, and, you know, I, I just find that interesting uh, when, when you see stuff that they do, you know, they're considered doing things best of breed. Um mm -hmm. And they had uh, this article takes a bunch of rules that NASA has just for coding and, you know, saying, what would happen if we applied these to how we commonly write JavaScript nowadays? I think uh, some of them make a lot of sense. I mean, it's just about writing good code at the end of the day. And some of them, I, I think they're a little off on, but, uh, you know, um, you know, some of the interesting things are like, uh, no function should be larger than what can be printed on a single sheet of paper. Um <laughs> What's what nice what paper? What's paper? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that one's interesting, but I mean, I know both of us, Jason, we kind of 
follow, you know, single responsibility, you know, don't repeat yourself kind of thing. And when you, when you code like that, you kind of generally just write shorter functions in general. So, you know, if, if you keep, you know, what you're writing very atomic, you know, it's, it's easier to keep track of. It's really easier to know what you're doing and the code is just more, you know, concise and will follow that printed on a sheet of paper. Yeah. Let's go through some more of these. Uh, Restrict all. I'll go ahead. You know, I was just going to jump. I didn't want to go through straight through, but one of them is all loops must have a fixed upper bound. I know there's a lot of times that when I program a loop, you know, it'll just be like a for each, you know, or or, or something like that. But, you know, they say because they run some of their software, you know, for decades, I mean, it goes out on. Uh, on probes that we shoot out in the space and it just happens to just keep going for, you know, 30, 40, 50 years. And then some, um, you got to have a limit to the, a known hard limit. So you don't hit, you know, these out of bounds errors. And, you know, if your code's running for 20 years and you've only tested for 19, you know, you don't know what you could run into. That's interesting. So are they suggesting like, if you do that, if you do that for each also have another number that you check against and make sure you don't just loop a certain number of times. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, Another one that, you know, I wouldn't even think of is an assertion density in a code should be a minimum of two assertions per function. So that's like, if, if, um, you're saying like my altitude is greater than the max possible altitude, you know, that's an assertion. So, Mm -hmm. um, it's basically saying that uh actually i don't know what it is i I had it at the time but i lost i I lost track of what i was thinking no that's that's fine yeah i think they're i think they're trying to like sort of limit the the context of of what's going on i mean if they're if they're factoring in you know a hundred different values into something then that's sort of a red flag that hey this is this is getting more complicated than uh you know you silly humans are going to be able to understand and there's oh. probably going to be bugs. Oh, what they're uh, what they're saying is, I, I read through it a little bit more. Uh, is mm-hmm. that the more that you test your code and put those conditions around it, um, the the less defects you're likely to have. Okay. So it, by doing that, is you're you're testing each piece of code at least twice. Okay. Interesting. Uh-huh. Yeah, these are pretty cool. There's what? There's ten different things on the list here. Yeah. So if you're interested in these, we'll have the link in the show notes once again. Um, like I said, I find them really fascinating as a whole. Um, and let's jump on to the next thing then, Jason. Okay. Well, actually, I keep thinking in my head the this whole like the the loops with the fixed upper bound. I was thinking that would be kind of neat if if the languages would start to support that, right? Because a for each doesn't have that support. Um, I guess you could do it with like a for loop, uh, but it would be kind of neat if for each if if uh, somebody were to actually modify that to allow like a second parameter in there that says, Hey, do it for each in this, but, uh, if it, you know, don't execute more than this many times or something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, you I mean, know, you, where the, you know, where the C sharp compiler code is. So yeah, I guess go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Just go in and edit Roslyn. Yeah. Speaking uh, of which, yeah, <laughs> there we go. Now we got the perfect segue. So, uh, this one is cool. So Roslyn is actually moving over to GitHub. Uh, it was on CodePlex, and I'm not a huge fan of CodePlex. I've been a huge fan of GitHub just because I think GitHub is a you know a little bit more friction free. Plus, uh, so much stuff is on GitHub now; it makes it really easy to um, issue pull requests and just sort of learn kind of a standard way of doing things. So, one question I had for you was, you know, is is uh, 
I noticed that MVVM Lite is on CodePlex. Are there any mm-hmm. plans to to move that over to GitHub, or what are your thoughts on that? Uh, yes, the day where they will support Mercurial, I will move it mm-hmm. to GitHub, not before. Uh, basically, I, I don't ah. like Git much. Um, I feel that, so you were talking about friction, and uh, I feel that yeah. Git has a lot, mo- a lot too much friction right now. Um, it's, uh, and, and I use it. I mean, it's not that I, that I don't know how to use it. I use it when I have to, obviously, and I do have a GitHub account and and everything, but I just find uh, Mercurial so freaking easy to use. Um, and, uh, you know, MVVM Lite is not a huge project, so I don't really Mm -hmm. need all the extra features that Git would bring to the table. Um, and uh, so I do have actually uh, the, the CodePlex repository is the, uh, the public face of MVVM Lite. Um, I, I have uh, another kind of a working repository where I do stuff and that's on uh, Bitbucket. Um, but uh, I, basically the, what I do is that when I have a, a version that I'm really happy with, um, mm-hmm. this is the one that I push to, um, that I push to um, you know, to uh, CodePlex. Um, I find that way of working really, really neat. And, uh, I, I love Mercurial. I'm really a big fan of that. I guess that I'm waiting. So I'm not a big fan of uh, command line stuff. And, uh, probably one of the reasons is that I work with designers all day long. Um, I'm, even though I'm a developer, I'm actually really coding, you know, UI and UX and, uh, and, and user interface and stuff like that. And so, um, having to work with a command line is, is really a, a pain for me. I don't like that much. And so I know that they, um, you know, hack and Phil hack and uh, and and Paul Betts and those guys are working on the on the client for Windows. I hear it's good. Um, I mm-hmm. have to probably at some point, you know, just try it out and and see how it is. But uh, so far, the um, the the I would say the pain of moving to GitHub and moving to Git was uh, was too big for me, so I didn't do it. I gotcha. I do have uh, an idea for you. Um, what you could do is you could actually take your mercurial repository. You could move it over to a uh, kiln, which is uh, a fog fog Creek product like fog bugs. You familiar with that? Uh, and yeah. they have, yeah. And they actually have a feature where, um, I don't remember what they call it. It's like unity or harmony. something like that. Harmony. All right. And, uh, you can, you can actually push code. In, you can, you can do any of the operations against either type of repository and they're the same repository. Mm-hmm. So you could push it in with mercurial. And then you can actually pull it out as Git. Okay. So what so what you could do is set up a little, you know, command line that kind of pulls all the latest uh, you know, revisions mm-hmm. via Git and then pushes them to the, you know, the GitHub repository. And meanwhile, you're actually interfacing with it as Mercurial. Mm-hmm. So that's just one thought for you. Yeah, if if sounds- you were interested in GitHub but didn't want to do Git. Mm-hmm. Sounds interesting. Yeah. It's uh you know, I think that the um I don't have really a lot of big incentive to move to GitHub. Uh, right, I guess right. that's really the uh, the end point. Um, probably, maybe visibility, but the visibility as it is right now is already pretty good. And so I don't think I would gain really a lot more, uh, you know, a lot more visibility for that. Now that MVVM Lite is on Xamarin, maybe things are a little bit different because it attracts a whole new crowd of developers. Um, in the in the Windows Windows world, uh, the the CodePlex visibility was pretty good so far. Uh, but you know, it's always something that I have in mind anyway, and uh, I, I'm not saying never. Uh, I'm just saying right now, you know, I have other things to do. <laughs> it's really, really no, that, about that. That. <laughs> that, that makes perfect sense. You know, do, yeah. do whatever feels comfortable. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of MVVM Lite, mm-hmm. um, 
that is why we wanted to talk to you. So you are actually one, I guess before I even uh, ask kind of the first thing I want to ask here, um, I mentioned in the beginning that you were the author of MVM, MVVM light or mm-hmm. is, is there uh, like another main contributor? Or is it, is it primarily you and then maybe some other minor contributors? Yeah, I would say uh, I would say primarily me, and uh, and definitely some helps and some and a lot of feedback from all kinds of people. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, one of the main contributors was Oren Novotny, and he uh, he did the uh, the portable class library version of it, uh, the initial one, and now um, I actually refactored everything so that the portable class library is now the main branch. Uh, earlier, it okay. was just a side branch. Now it's really the main branch. Um, and so he really helped me a lot, and also, um, you know, sometimes just talking to him about a few uh, few questions I had um, about uh, this and that, and maybe what is the best way to do things. Um, another uh, excellent contributor is Corrado Cavalli, my Italian friend who is also an MVP and awesome guy. Um, we talk a lot about he's he's been one of the users of MVVM Lite since the very beginning, and so he has a, a lot of good understanding how to use it in practice. And so we we spend quite a lot of time talking about the, you know, even just uh, things like how should I name this method, you know, or how should I uh, how should I name this property, or how should uh, should this work, or should I uh, I don't know. Recently, we had a lot of those kind of discussions when I did the port to uh, to Xamarin, and I added a few features which are Xamarin specific. And so uh, Corrado was really a huge help in uh, in helping me to, you know, just sometimes running some ideas or finding some some feedback about what is the best way to do things. Um, those are just two examples. There are tons of people who write to me with ideas, with uh, you know, sometimes pull requests, sometimes ideas, sometimes bugs, sometimes uh, repros or or stuff like that. And that's uh, that's a huge help. Um, I've been conservative in accepting new features in MVVM Lite because I don't want it to blow and become, uh, you know, too big a framework. I think the, the name says it all, right? It has to remain mm-hmm. small and light. Uh, but I definitely listen to everybody. And, and sometimes I say, well, no, I don't think I should do that just because, you know, it's uh, something that you can probably add on top of MVVM Lite easily enough, but I don't want to have it in the, in, in the core features just because I don't want to add too many, too many things into it. Um, so that's, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Okay. So, um, MVVM light, can you explain, you know, kind of from the beginning, what is it and why somebody would want to use it? Mm -hmm. Yes, I can. Uh, so it all started (laughs) a long time ago in, uh, around 2008, like that, um, when, you know, we were all working with WPF back then and, and Silverlight was just kind of, uh, you know, uh, a timeline on the on the planning of Microsoft yep. it was not really out yet. Um, well, it was kind of in development, I would say. Uh, but basically, uh, back then already, we were talking a lot about uh, what is the best way to do things. And um, um, I'm I was active in a in a in a group on Google Groups, which is which was called back then the WPF Disciples. And so we are talking a lot about, uh, hey, how can we do things in WPF the best way? And uh, some of these ideas started, you know, crystallizing in code. And at some point, I decided that I wanted to have um, to to blog about it quite a lot. And uh, because I didn't want to repeat the same things over and over again, I Mm -hmm. thought that I should probably do a small framework which would help me and that I could reuse in my articles and explain certain concepts once. And then after that, say, okay, now that is the basis we know that so let's move on and and explain some maybe more complex uh, complex concepts 
And um, and the first version of MVVM Lite was really that. It was not really intended as a, as a production tool. But I showed that to quite a few people and a lot of people told me, well, that's actually pretty interesting and I would use that in production if maybe we would change this and that. And so I did uh, quite a lot of refactoring then. I changed a lot of things. I made it really much more uh, production ready. And uh, and in 2009, I had actually the what I consider the first version of MVVM Lite, which was actually version 2. Um, and so that, uh, you know, a lot of people starting adopting it. And basically the idea behind that is um, to avoid repeating myself too often and uh, avoid writing, you know, skeleton code and, and scaffolding code and, and stuff which is really annoying to write. And... Um, so there are multiple ways that you can do that. You can either um, build quite an, uh, a strong and, and uh, how should I say, uh, a little bit maybe invasive framework and, and work with a lot of conventions and stuff like that. And I totally respect people who prefer that, but it's not my preference. My preference is uh, I, I'm, I'm a very pragmatic programmer and I like to see what is happening in my code and I like to be able to put breakpoints you know, in the right place and, and have the breakpoint hit when I'm, when I'm debugging so that I understand what is happening. And, uh, and plus, don't forget that there was always this idea of teaching people as well. Um, and so at some point, I, um, I just uh, created this, uh, this list of tools. And that's why I, I call it the MVVM like toolkit and not framework. Um, just because, in my opinion, it's a list of tools. It's a, it's a set of components that you can decide to use in your code or not. Um, so I, I don't really prescribe a way to do things, but I say, okay, if you do things this way, it's going to work great in Blend. It's going to work great with design time data. Um, it's, it has a few advantages that, that I can list. But at the same time, if you decide to use only one of the components and not the rest, it's absolutely fine. And a lot of people do that. And so that, um, that allows people also to take this framework maybe as a basis for something else and then to build their own library on top of it. So that's pretty much what, uh, what MVVM Lite is. So before we get a little bit too far, um, we've discussed sure. MVVM uh, quite a bit so far, but what is it exactly? Can you define that mm -hmm. for us? Yeah, MVVM is um, it's uh, just another architecture pattern like um, like MVC, MVP, and and things like that. And uh, MVVM, uh, well, the the name is kind of weird because it's uh, you know model view view model. But basically, what it says is that instead of using an MVC, a, a model view controller. Um, you're going to kind of split the controller in multiple smaller controllers, and those are what we call the view models. View models are not exactly the same as controllers. They are a little bit uh, more... Um, they are basically offering kind of a facade to the view and exposing properties, exposing commands. And, um, and then um, one of the big... Um, scenario where you want to use MVVM is when you have data binding. And so data binding is really a key component of that. So data binding is a, is a mechanism which is uh, usually included inside the application framework that you're using, like for example in XAML, um, or for example now in HTML, in Angular, there is a, a, a data binding framework or also knockout.js, etc. And um, data binding is allowing you to to go into your view and then to connect some of the properties of your view with some of the properties of, you know, another object, which in that case would be the view model. And um, the advantage of using MVVM um, when you have data binding is that it allows you to have really a very nice decoupled workflow where you create, um, you know, you have some developers creating the model and the data services and all that. Then you have some developers taking care 
of preparing the data for the view, and so that's where the that's what the view model does, and um, and then you have um, either the same people or other people basically uh, connecting the view to those properties and commands on the view model. And uh, it's a very nice workflow. In uh, Windows, we have uh, Blend, which is a fantastic tool, which is working extremely well with MVVM. And in fact, Blend um, was the first major tool built with WPF and MVVM. And so it kind of makes sense that it works great um, in order to do that. And this allows you a lot of uh, very nice features. Like, for example, um, you know, you can test a lot more in your application because the view models are just uh, plain old objects, basically. And so you can also unit test those objects. But they will, they already, they are kind of at the limit between the view and the model, which is why we call them view models. And um, they allow you, when you unit test your view model, you, you're kind of unit testing your view already, which would be very difficult to do if you were to, to really uh, do that in, an, in a standard MVC, uh, you know, MVC scenario. Um, so there are quite a lot of advantages to, to using that. Um, also, re more recently, probably uh, one of the, the big advantages that came out is that uh, if you do uh, an architecture with model view model, you can actually um, use this called cross-platform. And so with Xamarin, it's, for example, possible to create models and view models. And in your view models, you can have uh, all the... Uh, kind of annoying logic, like uh, when is this button going to be disabled or enabled? When is this uh, text going to be validated? When is this uh, part of the UI going to be hidden or shown? And uh, this is typically code that you can uh, write once, have it in the view model, unit test it, and then after that, uh, pull that, um, for example, in the portable class library in your Xamarin applications. Um, and so, um, of course, you are quite a lot faster in developing your apps. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. That's um, I hadn't even thought about the moving that code cross platform. I I'm always a, I'm a huge fan of testing and I like the fact that you could test those, but I, I never really thought about reusing those uh, mm -hmm. those view models. So I've used MVVM Lite. Uh, it's pretty slick. It's what I like about it is it it it's definitely not heavyweight. It doesn't it doesn't really get in your way. It, it, it seemed it always felt to me like it was helping, but not not in really impeding me in any way. So I'm, I'm kind of curious though, if there are scenarios that you, that you'd run into where MVVM light is not a, it's not a good, um, uh, a good fit. You shouldn't actually be using it. Um, well, so I've seen scenarios where people are using MVVM light, even though if it was me, I would probably not. And that's most probably when they are using something else, which, uh, which is kind of a superset of MBVM Lite, and uh, Prism is definitely one of those things. So um, I, I'm guessing that what's happening is that a lot of people feel very comfortable with MVVM Lite, and when they decide to use Prism for, uh, for example, in order to compose their views, even though in theory Prism can actually replace quite a few components of MVVM Lite because they have those components. A and the story of Prism and MVVM Lite is kind of funny because... Uh, both sides grew at the same time, and so Prism, the the, the initial version of Prism was uh, was uh, quite a lot more complicated to use than it is now. Um, but uh, I, I had quite a lot of discussions with the people of Prism, and and I know that they were definitely observing what I was doing and what the community was was liking. And so I know that definitely some of the of the ideas of MVVM Lite flew into Prism and and back. I mean, definitely some of the stuff of Prism is, uh, is really good stuff as well. Um, so in the end, you end up with uh, having Prism, the, the latest version, which uh, probably could 
replace MVVM Lite completely, but with a syntax which is just different enough that people who are already used to MVVM Lite um, probably don't want to do that extra step. And I, you know, it's it's fair enough. I mean, if they know how to use it. And so I end up seeing quite a lot of applications where people are using Prism for the composition of the UI, but in the back, they are still using MVVM Lite for features like the relay command and the messenger and stuff like that. So it's kind of an interesting scenario. Um, other than that, I would say um, what I observe in the Windows world at least is that there are typically two types of developers, some who likes convention over configuration and those who prefer the uh, configuration over the convention. And um, let me explain. So <laughs> I'm guessing that um, what I observed is that um, I think that nowadays there are really two major um, MVVM frameworks or toolkits or whatever you want to call that in the in the Windows world, and that's uh, Calibre Micro and MVVM Lite. And uh, both appeal to very different people. And um, Calibre is definitely more about conventions. And uh, Rob Eisenberg did a fantastic job there. Um, and uh, a lot of people are using that. And at the same time, the people who use Calibre don't really understand why people prefer MVVM Lite and vice versa, because the people who use <laughs> MVVM Lite have these ideas that, no, no, they prefer, they don't like conventions much. They prefer to explicitly write the code and, and use, you know, the, the shortcuts, the code snippets and stuff like that to to be faster, but at the same time still have the code before their eyes. And gotcha. um, yep. and so there is that. So, no, I, I wouldn't say you have to use it always. I, I'm really saying, you know, it can help you in certain scenarios. Uh, but uh, definitely, uh, you have to choose the framework that you that you like and that is uh, helping you to be the, the most productive. Since there are a couple of different frameworks for you know solving this MVVM solution, uh, do you have any you know opinion on maybe why Microsoft doesn't supply a first party solution for this? Um, yes, I think that Microsoft doesn't really want to take sides and to um, and to promote one way of doing things as being the only way. Um, I think that historically, Microsoft has been very, uh, how should I say that? They, they have really observed the trends in the development world and they have offered tools which support every, every one of those trends. Um, for example, if you consider that you can write a Windows 8 application with uh, C-sharp and XAML or HTML and JavaScript or you know, even VB, etc. So basically, they, they really want to give you the choice. And I think this is what's happening here, where they don't want to really constrain people too much uh, in using one uh, framework and one toolkit. And um, it, it doesn't mean that we don't collaborate. I mean, we, I collaborate a lot with Microsoft, and uh, they I'm, I'm a partner, uh, well, MVVM Lite really is a partner uh, in multiple of the... Um, you know, multiple of the uh, initiatives that Microsoft is having. And uh, so, you know, there is this kind of uh, of seal of approval somehow a little bit. I, you know, it's always nice to see the MVVM Lite logo on a, on a slide at build or stuff like that. Um, but at the same time, um, they also don't want to say that this is the, the only way to do things. And I think that if Microsoft was putting um, things like that into their own project templates, it would kind of gives the impression that this is really the only way to do things. And uh, I don't think that it would be um, very, very productive in the end. I, I kind of like the situation as it is now. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe having some guidance would be, uh, maybe some clearer guidance would, would not be a bad thing. But at the same time, I think that there is quite a lot of guidance out there. At least my my personal experience is that people are finding it. And 
uh, yeah, I, I don't think it's uh, really a bad situation as it is now. Right. Um, I remember being part of a discussion with a group of people that uh, were concerned about performance in in binding, especially when it comes to uh, WinRT. Um, mm-hmm. Is this really a concern that you see, or do you have a different opinion on this issue? No, I, I, I don't have a different opinion. There is a fact that data binding is adding a little bit of overhead to your, um, to your UI because um, basically instead of directly acting uh, you know, on the property itself, you're going to, uh, to go through the data binding system, which is often using some kind of reflection to access the property. Um, in, uh, in most cases, I would say in, in, in really a lot, lot, lot of cases, uh, the overhead is can be neglected. I mean, it's not really something which is which is going to to hinder your uh, well, basically to slow down your UI enough that it is worth doing something about it. Uh, you're not even going to notice it. But there are some scenarios where it can affect. And um, so one scenario that I have in mind, which was uh, a few years ago already, in around 2009, 2010, when we did the first uh, Windows uh, Windows Phone applications back then. Um, well, the anecdote is that I was working on the on the very first version of Twitter back then, and um, Twitter. If you consider the the list, well, you know the list box back then it was the list box. Nowadays we would probably use the list view for that, but um, the data templates are actually pretty complex um, because you can have an image, you can have links, uh, you can have uh, you know different styles for maybe the date and the and the text and stuff like that and the the the, the user's name and all that. And so we tried to do that with, um, you know, with a standard approach. And uh, the first time that we were running the application, it was really horrible. The, the the list was not scrolling nicely, even though it was virtualized, but it was really horrible. And um, so eventually we just actually went back and we redid everything without any data binding, without anything really. We were just using, uh, you know, finding the element using the visual tree and then assigning the, the value um, in terms of code, it was uh, probably not very good code because it was hard to follow what was happening and, and uh, you know, it was kind of a pain to write and to test. Uh, but at the same time, it was the only way that we had to actually make it work. Um, so we, we decided to do that way. Later, you know, the, the framework team, the Windows Phone team did a fantastic job on that. The list view and the list boxes are performing much better now. Um, so you don't have those problems anymore, and now we can really use standard data binding in, in most scenarios. Um, but there are cases where data binding can cost you some time, so you need to be careful. My take on performance is always uh, pretty pragmatic, um, like probably everything I do in coding. And uh, uh, typically, I like to try things the uh, you know the canonical ways, the, the ways that I like and, and know, and and probably um, the ways that is described as being you know the the cleaner way, um, and then if you see that it's uh, that it's not working good enough, then you go back and then you restudy your thing, and then you find out where you can speed things up. Uh, typically, it's what we do, and and I find that it's working great, especially at the UI level. Um, data binding in uh, in Android, for example, can be um, also an issue. So there are no data bindings in Android uh, or in iOS, for that matter. Uh, however, in uh, MVVM Lite and uh, also the Xamarin Forms team, uh, Xamarin Forms is a new framework that Xamarin has been uh, working on and, and published uh, last year, which is basically offering you uh, XAML on top of, of Xamarin and uh, you can develop your UI only once and run it everywhere. 
And so they also have data binding there. And uh, I was talking to the, um, to the data binding team at Xamarin, and uh, they were running into some of the same issues that I had. Uh, which is especially in terms of of managing the memory because since in Xamarin very much is unmanaged code. So you're basically interfacing very fast uh, from your C-sharp code into uh, unmanaged code, which can be either the Android code or the uh, or the iOS code. And so uh, memory management can be kind of a pain. So you, if you have some, some UI, which is really very complex and uh, especially lists where you are scrolling uh, very fast, things like that, uh, using data binding in those scenarios is probably not the best idea. Uh, but again, I think the best way is really to try it out and uh, remember to try things out on uh, low-end hardware, uh, especially now in Windows Phone, we have some very low-end hardware coming out. So, you know, the the new uh, Nokia, uh, Nokia, sorry, Lumia, what do I say? <laughs> Microsoft Lumia, yeah. uh, the 4, 4, what is it, 420 or 430, I forget. Uh, those are really very, very low-end hardware. And so it's always a good idea to test and, and check out if uh, things are working fine. Yeah. So speaking of uh, phone and mobile, so I've heard people say that, and I actually, I think that the people I'm referring to, Carl is one of them. Uh, <laughs> so I've heard <laughs> him say like, you know, you don't need MVVM on a phone cause it's, you know, it's a phone. Um, so I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. Well, so there is no, um, no doubt that the phone application is a smaller application than, uh, than the desktop application typically. And, uh, the the way that you develop is is probably you know probably going to be different as well. Um, my take on that is that when you're um, when you're used to doing things one way, you're definitely faster and more efficient in doing things that way. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, I guess in the end the question is uh, you know why why do you need MVVM really? And uh, in my case, I like to have MVVM because first of all. Um, in my case, one of the most important things is really the design time experience. Um, and uh, I work, like I said, very closely with designers in my in my firm, Identity Mind. We are known for creating good user experience. And I need Blend to do that. And uh, without MVVM, I just can use a fraction of the power that Blend is offering me otherwise. And so um, I guess that the question is, uh, okay, do I want to use Blend to design my phone app? Definitely the answer is yes. Um, so, so in that case, it's an advantage. Another thing is, you know, the testability that we mentioned, are you unit testing your, your phone apps? Probably yes. So, uh, you know, having MVVM is going to, it's not that you cannot test if you don't have MVVM, but it's really that you can test a bit more if you, if you have it. So that's also an advantage. And, uh, also, you know, nowadays, what is a phone application really? I mean, uh, we are working more and more on universal apps and this code is right. going to run, uh, you know, on Windows tablets, it's going to run maybe even in some scenarios on the in the Windows desktop application with WPF, um, and definitely on iPads and uh, and Android tablets and and maybe other computing devices. And so I find that the this uh, line between phone app, uh, mobile app, tablet app, and desktop app is really getting blurred more and more. And uh, it's not rare that we are reusing parts of the uh, of, of a desktop app into a phone app, uh, or for example, we do Xbox applications uh, at Identity Mine, uh, and same thing, right? We often develop code which is running on the Xbox and on Windows, and they just have a different user interface. But a lot of that code which is underlying is going to be the same. So in those scenarios, I think it really just makes sense to go um, once and for all for for the MVVM pattern. And then like this, you know how you build things. 
But I would say that it makes sense to, uh, you know, a lot of people are, are using MVVM Lite on the phone mostly because, yes, those applications are smaller and so you want something which is not really in your way. And, uh, and I think MVVM Lite is doing that. Um, what I saw is that when Windows Phone came out, this is actually when, you know, when the, the number of downloads uh, of MVVM Lite really started to, to take off like crazy and a lot of, a lot of people were using MVVM Lite on phone applications. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, earlier you talked about that uh, MVVM Lite now has support for Xamarin. Uh, yeah, was this was was there a lot of work that it took to do this, or you know what was involved, you know, mm-hmm. to make that transition? Yeah, so uh, porting the components itself was really super easy because um, you know basically Xamarin is really .NET, and so I'm not doing anything really magical, so. Um, mostly I took what was existing and then I had a couple of things that I had to figure out. Uh, like, for example, the threading model is different in, in Xamarin and, and stuff like that. But um, it was really no big deal. And uh, so eventually, I, the, the, the basic components, I would say the core components of MVVM Lite, of MVVM Lite porting them was probably uh, the matter of a weekend, I would say. It was really super easy. Um, however... After that, was what really cost me much more time was figuring out what is the best way to use it. Because um, especially in Xamarin Android and Xamarin iOS, and so that was before Xamarin Forms was released, um, you don't have data binding. And it's, a, it's really an MVC framework. So you have your, your model, your view, and then your, your controller. And the controller, especially in iOS, you have controllers everywhere. So it's really very... Important, but even in uh, in Android they call that activity, but it's it's really a controller. And so it took me a while until I figured out that those controllers are actually what in in the Windows world we call code behind, and they are really nothing else than code behind where you handle events and maybe you go and assign some values to some properties of your view. Um, and so once I had that figured out, because the very first question I had to answer was really, does MVVM even make sense on Xamarin or not? And uh, once I figured out that, uh, you know, you have your view, your code behind, but you still need this kind of, of glue between the code behind and the, and the service. And so having a view model in the middle here was actually bringing me the same advantages than, than on Windows. Um, maybe minus the design experience because the designers on uh, Xamarin Android and Xamarin iOS cannot really take advantage of the MVVM light pattern, of the MVVM pattern, because... Um, they don't really run code, so they are not really executing design time code. So you have to kind of find some work around that. But um, you know, once I once I found out, or or rather, um, you know, there was a lot of thinking involved. I would say, but once I realized that it does make sense to have the MVVM pattern on those uh, on those platforms as well, uh, then I started thinking, okay, so how do I want to structure my application? And it was more about uh, maybe probably finding some best practices and also talking a lot to the Xamarin people and the, um, you know, the Xamarin evangelists, et cetera. And, um, and then also finding out what is missing. And so I found that one thing which was missing was uh, having a good data binding system on, uh, on those scenarios. And so I decided to uh, actually create one. So I, I did one and uh, I added that into MVVM Lite. So this is only for Android and iOS. Um, so those steps were quite a lot of work, but I would say it was more about, you know, learning the platform, finding out what is the best way to do things, and uh, and really thinking about uh, how can I how can I do things in a way which is really helping people. Yeah, it's very cool how much of uh, of the knowledge 
from you know the Windows platform now you can bring over to iOS and Android. That's really cool. So I'm I'm kind of curious. You know, you spoke at the the Xamarin Evolve event. I'm mm-hmm. I'm curious if that was was that to get the word out about MVVM Lite or or ha- did you work with Xamarin previously or you know mm-hmm. have you used them quite a bit? Um, so I I worked with Xamarin in the as a user in the sense that we we have uh, some Xamarin projects out there. Uh, okay. And uh, I would say the, the pace is picking up and we have more and more of those projects. So that's really cool. Um, even though we are primarily a, a Windows shop, we like to do stuff on any kind of platform and really user experience is uh, extremely important for us. And so every time that we can adopt a new platform and push things out to, uh, to users, it's, uh, it's really something that we love to do. Um, but I think that most importantly, I have been uh, working with Xamarin people um, and talking to them and uh, probably harassing them quite a lot with emails and, and Skype calls and trying to find out, you know, what is the best way to do things. And uh, so after a while, they started knowing, you know, knowing my name. And anyway, I, I'm friend with some people at Xamarin for a very long time already. I think Miguel, uh, especially Miguel de Casa and myself, I think mm-hmm. we, we go back probably 2007, 2008, something like that. Okay. Uh, when we when we met at at Mix and talking about a whole lot of things and uh, and some of the guys um, you know the, the the founders and and the kind of the core team of uh, Xamarin are, are very good friends and so we've been talking a lot really and um, actually the uh, the Xamarin Evolve uh, session they actually asked me if I wanted to speak there and I was super happy uh, I speak at quite a lot of conferences and I submit a lot of. Uh, you know, a lot of talks, uh, a little bit everywhere I can. Um, but uh, of course, when you when you get an email asking you, hey, are you interested to speak at our conference and especially Evolve, which is kind of the, yeah. it's a big deal. Um, it, it was great. And I had heard so many good things about Evolve. Um, I had the chance to speak three times at, at Mix uh, in Las Vegas uh, in the early days. So I spoke there in uh, uh, I forget now, I think 2009, 10, and 11, if I'm not mistaken, something like that. Um, and Mix was my my favorite conference by far. It was fantastic, mostly because it was uh, not a huge size. Um, and you could really walk in the in the hallways and find the speakers and talk to them. And, uh, and uh, I really loved speaking there. And when they decided, when Microsoft decided to cancel uh, Mix, it was... Um, it was kind of a blow because I, I felt that we were really losing some values. And um, going at Evolve gave me the impression that Mix was back. And uh, that was really cool. It was the same kind of spirit, uh, very laid back, but at the same time, uh, a lot of great speakers, uh, a lot of fantastic sessions. And uh, I think the, the value was fantastic. And plus, it was in Atlanta, and we had some fantastic barbecue at the in the evening at the, at the attendee party. So that was also added value. For sure. <laughs> well, that's the important part. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it sounds like a really cool conference. It, it is really. I can really encourage everybody to uh, to go there. And if you cannot go there, they put all the uh, all the videos online, so they are very generous with that. So you can find actually yeah. all the sessions and all the source code and everything online. Yeah. Carl, you on mute? Yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> I was wondering if I had lost you or something. No. So if I'm a new to MVVM or MV or I'm just interested in using MVVM Lite for the first time, what's the best way to go about doing that and to learn it and figure it out? Well, so obviously um, I'm very, very uh, interested in having people watching the ProSite calls that I made, not just because it's, uh, you know, helping me to buy some cool gadgets because they pay me something. 
Um, but uh, seriously, it is a it is a course which is sought as uh, as a reference course for people starting from scratch and uh, not not totally being sure what is uh, what is this MVVM thing and and how should I start? And so I really structured the course. It's about almost five hours of course. Um, where you have uh, step-by-step, okay, this is how you should probably structure your app and this is the advantages that it's going to bring to you. So I would definitely recommend to to people to watch the course. Uh, Now, obviously, there is a a subscription involved. So if you don't want that, you can also check out the uh, the MSDN magazine articles that I wrote, which are going to give you um, a, a good insight and and more than an insight really quite a deep insight into uh into the components uh, separately uh you can also check out um uh, you know quite a lot of the sessions i made are uh, available on uh, video and uh, actually just recently i i decided to um to revamp my my website a little bit and i now have a section uh, which is really about presentations and you can find all the presentations where i talked in the past few years um, and uh, most of those presentations have slides. Well, actually, all of them have slides. All of them have source code, but most of them have even the video feed. Um, and so that's uh, quite a good value, as, uh, you know, especially if you want to get started and understand what is it about. Uh, the course is probably a, a much more structured approach. And so I, you know, when you speak at a conference, you have an hour typically to to cover quite a lot of ground. And um, so sometimes it's a little bit fast, but the course is uh, probably going to help you to 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 find out if that's for you or not. Yeah, this uh, I'm just looking at. We're going to have a link to the to your plural site course in the show notes, but the uh, this is like really really detailed. It's very mm-hmm. nice. Yeah, I really took care. Uh, you know, it's it's really a fundamentals course, but it's uh, for me it's really a reference course, and so I wanted to be able to have one place where I list really all the features that you can have, all the you know, what does it do if I pass true instead of false into that method? You know, this kind of, uh, of questions. And those questions are kind of hard to answer uh, in a very detailed manner in a, in a conference because you don't really have time for that. So uh, having the reference course is definitely a, a great help. And uh, I'm also, um, you know, thinking of the future and, and bringing more courses, especially for the Xamarin side of things, um, as well as, uh, of course, uh, you know, updating the course with new features and things like that. Yeah. Very cool. So are there any, um, I'm kind of curious, are there any MVVM light features that are coming up that you wanted to uh, share and talk about? Um, sure. Well, I'm I'm actually working on one right now. So uh, I just shut down Visual Studio about 10 minutes before we started talking. So um, the, <laughs> the feature I'm working on now is, uh, it's really on, on Xamarin. I think the new features that are coming out are, are mostly going to be on Xamarin and maybe a few on Windows. But uh, uh, on Windows, I have a set of features that I'm quite comfortable with, I think. Um, I, I do get suggestions, but like I said, I'm a little bit conservative in adding new uh, new features because I want to make sure that they are really needed. Um, yeah. On uh, on on the Xamarin side, um, so some stuff which is really um, brand new is uh, the 64-bit support for iPhone. Uh, well, iPhone and iPad, really, so iOS. Um, and this is a requirement by Apple, so I had to... Uh, to port uh, MVVM Lite to 64-bit on iOS in order to allow people to build applications for that uh, with with MVVM Lite and then to submit them to the store. Uh, So that was one thing which uh, was kind of... um, well, you know, it's when you do these kind of things that you see how privileged we are on the Windows side because Microsoft would never basically 
tell you to change your code just to take advantage of the 64-bit architecture, but whatever. Um, I digress. Um, so that was something. <laughs> but at the same time, I'm also taking the occasion to uh, to do something else. And um, in the uh, in the Xamarin version of MVVM Lite, I also have some navigation services. Um, and uh, navigation is quite different in Apple in I in iPhone if you do it with uh, storyboards or with the uh, the old way, which is uh, using the interface builder. And so the navigation service I had was not really optimized for storyboard. So I'm modifying it right now to uh, to really have a, a version which is working great with uh, with a storyboard way of building UI in i in iOS. Um, I'm not going to go too deep into the detail, but basically storyboards are kind of the the new way to build UI in iOS, and um, and that's what Apple is recommending. And so of course you want to have a, a version of the navigation service which is working great with that as well. Uh, so that's going to be a new feature. Uh, other than that, I have uh, a, a few bugs and uh, and and you know a few requests that I'm that I want to take care of in this release as well. So I'm always going through the bug list and and the issues list on uh, on Codeplex. Uh, a lot of people submit some great finds, some stuff that I that I'm really wondering. Wow, how did they even find it? Because you know, after after five six years, I nobody had ever sort of using MVVM like this way, I guess. So um so yeah I'm I'm trying to um to please everybody and and take care of the of the thing which is uh, which is hindering, you know, a few people I I'm trying to take care of that. Uh sometimes it's uh, it's difficult because you cannot really please everybody at the same time. Um but I'm definitely doing my best there. Um, and apart from that, I have a few ideas for new components also that I'm thinking about. Um, but I think it's uh, still a little bit premature to talk about it. But I have a few ideas of things that I could add, which uh, basically could make you know somebody's life a little bit easier when they when they develop view models. Excellent. That sounds great. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, thank you. Um, let's move on to the Azure pick of the week. So I have uh, this actually isn't an Azure feature this week. My pick of the week is actually, uh, it's an icon set for Visio and PowerPoint, and, and it has some uh, PNG versions as well. But basically it's symbols, uh, it's Azure symbols, cloud and enterprise symbols. And uh, this is really great for if you're in Visio and you wanna sort of diagram out, you know, like an architecture where you're using Azure or just, you know, cloud components in general. And this is all the different symbols for the various services. So this is very cool. So I'll have a link to that in the show notes. But I end up using this all the time whenever I'm uh, creating uh, architectures for Azure. So make sure you check that out. One and then, thing I... Uh, oh, go ahead. Uh, yeah. I, uh, before we leave this topic, I actually have heard this week uh, somebody that uh, I work with use this in front of a client to help explain Azure to them. Oh, really? So, That's yeah. cool. So it, this is really good. It has a lot of the symbols that one, you know, you know Microsoft took the time to make and be very representative of the features that are in Azure and yep. that describe the cloud. And they had them done professionally and we can use that and, and take that experience uh, for free and use it to enhance our personal and professional lives and careers. So I just yep. think that's really cool when I saw that in action. Yeah. And then these are all like, you know, they're all vector images for Visio as an example, which is really cool. So they can, you can put them into any size, but uh, that reminded me, I was at uh, a partner company and I was sitting there, we were, we first we whiteboarded, um, you know, an architecture. And then I sat down and I think in about 10 minutes, I turned that into a Visio and I put it up on the screen 
And they were like, wow, you know, you, you're amazing with Visio. And I'm like, uh, sure. <laughs> and really what it came down to was using this, this pack, because this gives you all those symbols and makes it look extremely professional. And, uh, I don't know, that was about it. I mean, I, I, I'm definitely not a Visio expert, but, um, you know, I just, I know how to do what I need to do in it. And this makes it look really cool. Very nice. Yep. And then Carl, what do you got for the app of the week? App of the week is due entirely to my new Microsoft band. <laughs> it's an app for Windows Phone called Pimp My Band. And oh, what, yeah, what it allows awesome. Yep. Okay, so maybe on other platforms as well. But it allows you to change your background wallpaper on it and the default coloring and a few others other tweaks as well. But uh, it's really great to personalize it and make it your own. Um, I, of course, took the MS Dev Show logo, and that's my my wallpaper right now. Yeah, I saw that. You sent me a, a picture of that. That was really cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other the other app I recommend, I, we don't have it on the list here, but that's all right. I can just kind of go ad hoc. Have you seen the um, the one that gives you all the metrics off the band, the band sensor monitor? Yes. Okay, that one is very cool, too. So those are really like the two must-have apps for, for the band. Um, so the band sensor monitor lets you view all of the the sensor data in real time off there and it really is real time i'll show it to people and i'll turn on the light sensor as an example and as you point it toward a light you watch that number go up like you know it's like less than a second of lag so it's uh it's very cool pretty cool and the lag is probably more due to bluetooth than to anything else i guess uh yeah i i I don't know it's it's shockingly low so it's it's pretty impressive Okay, so Lauren, we play a game here. This is really easy. All you have to do is you have to pick a number between one and four and then answer the question. All right. So what number would you like? Three. Three. Okay. Would you rather have to try to fight off a mean dog with a full super soaker squirt gun without more water for refills? That's pretty complex. Or (laughs) with 20 cans of silly string? Uh, I, can I use a steak instead? And no, just, no, steak no, is not I, an answer. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, that's a really good question. I guess I would just go with a with a water gun, probably. Sounds, okay. Yeah, sounds less uh, hassles than to have to open all the cans of silly string. I yeah. Plus, then cleaning that stuff up is not fun. Yeah. Yeah. So what? So what's the correct answer? Well, there is no correct answer. There is no correct answer. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you won. Okay. Well, actually, oh, we'll great. see how Carl does, and then we'll tell you if you won. But you're going to win. Uh, Carl, uh, what number would you like? <laughs> One. One. Would you rather swim in freezing water or swim in a warm swimming pool in which you know lots of children have been peeing? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess as long as it's chlorinated. Yeah. I, I, I would take the warm pool. I, I'm not one for torturing myself with, with cold. Okay. <laughs> and I live in Wisconsin, so. Okay. Well, you lose, Carl. No. <laughs> the, the guest, here the guest always wins. <laughs> oh, wow. That's so nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's the one thing you get for being on the show is you get to, you get to win the game. That's cool. <laughs> okay. So, Lauren, where can, uh, where can people find you? Like, Carl has, like, hmm? three pages of different links here, but <laughs> where, where okay. do you suggest people go if they want to uh, uh, learn, learn more about you and hear what you have to say? Yeah, well, so, uh, so really two uh, two sides i guess so you you can find pretty much the the path to everywhere on my on my website which is uh, galasoft.ch so g a l a s o f t and the .ch is for switzerland actually okay 
Um, but of course, MVVM Lite has also a dedicated uh, a dedicated URL, and it's uh, mvvmlite.net, so it's easy enough to find. Uh, I would say those are really two places where you can go. I have my blog on the galasoft.ch as well, and um, the blog is is fairly active. I, I don't publish as much as I used to, where you know sometimes I was posting you know multiple times a week. So now it's more like if I'm if I have multiple times a month, I'm quite happy. Uh, mm-hmm. But at the same time, the articles tend to be bigger as well. So I think that there is still quite a lot of value in reading that. Uh, and definitely all the um, all the uh, the news about MVVM Lite are, uh, MVVM Lite are published there, so it's probably a good way to to follow it. Uh, other than that, you can always find me on Twitter, and that's uh, L Bunion, L B U G N I O N, and um, I'm uh, quite active on Twitter. Uh, I answer as much as I can, and uh, this is definitely a good way to contact me. And uh, you know, if people have questions or or anything, I I try to reply as much as I can. Very cool. And Carl, where can people find you? You can find me at WPDevGuy.com or on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. Okay. And you can find me at YTechie.com or on Twitter at Twitter.com slash YTechie. And actually, I have a new post out there. Uh, It's called IoT Data and Manufacturing, My Thoughts. And this is um, just, it really, I, I put my thoughts at the end. The the phrase my thoughts, because it's, it is sort of, uh, it jumps around a little bit. But the the general concept that I was trying to get across here, I, I've been doing a lot of thinking about IoT and what that actually means. And, you know, there is something of substance there. It's not it's it is sort of just a label, but there's there's very interesting things going on there. And I know, uh, Carl, I had uh, I think I did I send you uh, I think I sent you a link to those new Cree bulbs, right? Yes. There's like the, you know, the, the, my light bulb of choice is the Cree bulbs that you can buy at Home Depot. And those things are like seven or eight bucks a piece. And now they have a Zigbee version that's uh, $15. And uh, so now that's, it's really getting to the point where the overhead of adding IOT things uh, to things is getting pretty low. And uh, Samsung has, uh, they've said that I think uh, uh, within two years, like 90% of all their new products will, will have um, be able to be controlled over some kind of IOT mechanism. But anyway, this this post here in particular is talking about manufacturing and just thinking through some of the the complexities there and how you actually manage something like that. And this partially came out of our podcast that we had with uh, Josh Holmes, where we were talking about how you you know how you configure this while you when you have all these these various devices in a in a manufacturing context. So you know if I were to apply uh, what I w- what I'm talking about in this article to consumer as an example it sort of solves a problem I've been talking about on the podcast for a long time. You know, I always talked about how we have all these different sensors that sort of, um, they all have a a little piece of the puzzle as to like things like occupancy. You know, if I have a nest thermostat, it, in many cases, it knows if I'm home, but my, my, my computer has a pretty good idea if I'm home also, because I'm logged in and I'm typing, Mm -hmm. um, you know, my band, there's my phone, the GPS location, uh, my car, if it were to have GPS. So like, how do you, how do you combine all of those mm-hmm. things? And and really my thinking around that is to have sort of a separate logical model where all of these devices essentially contribute to this, this virtual sensor. Let's call it, you know, let's call it Jason is home. And it's really like a, a true or false. Um, and, and, and that virtual sensor combines, you know, all these other sensors are able to contribute to that. You know, they're able to say, um, hey, I just saw him. Hey, I just saw him typing something on his computer, and they can all mm-hmm. contribute to that, and they're all weighted differently. And so they, the uh, um, the, the funny ahead. funny anecdote is that when I 
started, so now I'm working for Identity Mind since 2008. But before that, mm-hmm. I was actually working for a division of Siemens called Siemens Building Technologies. Okay. And uh, my work was actually to, well, we, we didn't call that Internet of Things back then, but right. it was really what it was. We, we had sensors pretty much everywhere in the building. And uh, the big challenge was to make sense of what they are giving you because it's exactly. really a lot of data. And um, that was actually really interesting. I really loved this uh, this job and, and coding, these kind of things. Um, and so the first uh, job I had was actually working on uh, on very low level code in um, you know in, in, in controllers which were taking care of regulating the temperature, mm-hmm. um, and uh, not just the temperature but also you know humidity and uh, and air quality and stuff like that. And that was interesting. But what was even more interesting is later when we started really integrating a lot more data. And uh, what you were saying is. Uh, is exactly that. So in those intelligent buildings, now you you switch the light off when nobody is in the building to save energy, and you will also probably switch off the um, you know the heating. Well, at least at least go go down a few degrees uh, when people are not there. And so the big challenge is, of course, making sure that really nobody is there and not switching yep. the switching the lamp off. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been uh, you know sitting in a in a restroom where suddenly yep. you don't move enough and then the light goes off and that's kind yeah, of scary. Yeah, you got to throw the, the toilet paper over the wall exactly, or something. Exactly, yeah. So that can, be, that can be an issue. So anyway, yeah, that's uh, that's really interesting. And I, I really love uh, Internet of Things mostly because um, before, um, you know, it was, uh, you had to be uh, into a big firm and very specialized if you wanted to do that simply because people were not just installing they just didn't install the devices because it was quite costly, except if they were really renovating the whole building and all that. But nowadays, with all those uh, different smaller modules that you have, um, you know, installing them is not such a big deal anymore. And you don't really have, and also, you know, you have wireless everywhere, so you, you don't really have to uh, to install a lot of uh, of cables, which are, of course, very costly and, and yeah. not very nice to see. And uh, it's really cool, actually, to see that. And we, we are very excited about that and coding for stuff which is not necessarily running on the computer has always been something which is uh, exciting us at, at Identity Mind quite a lot. So we're really happy that it's coming, uh, you know, mainstream those days. Yeah. And, and I guess, uh, you know, I'll kind of finish up my point here mm-hmm. that, that one of the, th- one of the points that I was trying to make, if you look at all this automation software in, in, in manufacturing and, and in the consumer space, what you see, if, especially if you look at the consumer ones, they all say, you know, let's take the nest. That's a really simple example. Uh, mm-hmm. the nest says if my motion, and it has a couple sensors, but let's just pretend like it has one. It says, if this motion sensor sees somebody, then they're home. Let's turn up the heat. Like that's the rule. Mm-hmm. And, and, and anytime you get one of these, these apps for IOT, it says, you know, if I walk up to the door, um, you know, if the sensor sees me unlock the door. And, and I think there's a huge problem with that because take the nest example, you know, again, really what it should come down to is if I'm home, turn up the heat. And again, those, the, all those sensors should be working together. So I think we have to have I think that's that's the big disconnect. I I really don't think we can get there by just saying, you know, if this then that. I know there's that whole site and and uh, you know, there's a lot of apps that try to do that with specific IoT components. Mm-hmm. But I think I think there needs to be this concept of virtual sensors or or some kind of logical model that goes on top of it. And that'll be too complex for some people. But those people probably won't have much automation anyway. But um, I, I think there has to be something like that. I, this has to get solved some way. That, that seems to be like one of the big gaps right now. Mm-hmm. 
So anyway, I, like I said, I, I could probably talk about this for an hour, but I am <laughs> going to spare everybody <laughs> and we can, uh, we can wrap this up. So Lauren, thanks. You, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank and you so about much MV- for having me. Yeah. I love talking about MVVM light. This is very cool. So, so we really appreciate it. Sure. It was my pleasure. Really. Be sure to subscribe by searching for MS Dev Show in your favorite podcasting app. Leave us a review at iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast aggregator of choice. Visit us at msdevshow.com where you can leave comments, check out our links, show notes, and more. Visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash msdevshow. You can send us your comments and feedback directly to feedback at msdevshow.com. 